Well, thank you very much for that uh, introduction. Uh, I think I'm going to become a Presbyterian. I've never introduced so warmly in any Anglican <laughs> church. So, thank you. I did go to Scots College when I was a boy and wore a kilt and did other things like this, which is a bit odd. But uh, So I could be tempted, even at this late stage. Thank you. The first bishop of the Presbyterian Church <laughs> would be tricky. So there we are. Anyhow, it's a delight to be back with you again and uh, very, very pleased that I could uh, join you for this. And I've listened into a couple of the sermons before this one and judged them and I'll give you an account later of what I thought of them. Uh, no, I'm sure they were excellent. Um, and we've come now to this middle section. And uh, before we... Look at it. Let's uh, ask for the Lord to bless us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've not left us in ignorance and darkness, but you've given us the light of your word. And we pray that by the power of your spirit, you will so speak the truth to us that we may believe it and obey it. For Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, I have a friend who's a very keen evangelist. He's very keen at sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus wherever he goes. And so I rang him uh, uh, a day or two ago and said to him, if he were to ask people, and he does, what is a Christian, what is a Christian, uh, what sort of answers does he get in contemporary Australia? And uh, he said, well, surprisingly, people don't say an awful hypocrite or something like that. They tend to say, well, a, a Christian is a, is a good person who goes to church. And they don't even refer to belief, actually, but they talk a good person who goes to church. Uh, then he's asked them a little bit later on, look, uh, one of these days uh, you will die and you'll come before God and uh, your hope will be eternal life, but what is your argument on that day? Why should you have eternal life? And he says the general answer is, almost invariably, is, well, um, uh, uh, I'm not a bad person. I'm not really as bad as someone else. Uh, I'm, I'm quite good, and therefore, please let me into heaven and let me spend the rest of my days, uh, well, eternity in heaven with you. That's the idea of the gospel that most people have that it's about good people going to church and that at the end of your life you can have a little discussion with God and have a little look at your life and it will probably be good enough, you hope it will be good enough uh, to be allowed to have eternal life. That's the message which people have out there. You've been on a journey. Uh, in the last few weeks, in this passage in God's Word, which is one of the most extraordinary and wonderful and richest passages in the Word of God in the Epistle to the Romans, uh, you've been on a journey uh, which has taken you through the chapter 1 and most of chapter 2 down to the point where we are. Uh, in the next little while, you're going to go further into the Epistle of the Romans. Uh, it's a wonderful journey. God be thanked that uh, this decision has been made and you are doing this and I hope that you're here every week so that you can follow through uh, and be on the journey of doing this. Now, this week we have been given quite a short passage, 
just three or four verses, uh, which is excellent because I thought it might be an opportunity to look back from where you've come and to look forward to where you're going. So just stand back a little and think of where the journey is and where it's taking us. Uh, In particular, I think it would be good to look to where uh, I am going to finish up when uh, I have, I don't mean personally dying, I mean (laughs) in the next couple of weeks, uh, though at my age you can never be sure I'll be back each week, uh, but in the next couple of weeks uh, where I am, where my remit is going to finish. And so I'm going to start, and you've got an outline there, and I've started with uh, that uh, strange uh, subject there, Two Dread Moments. And we're not going to look at chapter 2 straight away. We're going to go now to chapter 3, where my section finishes up, chapter 3 and verses 19 to 20, to see where the journey is going to take us to this important moment. Uh, And indeed, it is not just because I will be here for two weeks and that's where I'm finishing. It is a pivotal moment in Romans, these two verses, because he's going to, at that point, draw together all he's been saying and summarise it. And uh, there we are. So these are pretty significant little verses here. Three, verses 19 to 20. Let's have a look at them. I hope you've got your Bible open there. It's uh, easier to read it. And when the sermon gets boring, you can read on and people think you're being godly. (laughs) So there we are. So verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one, I love this, therefore, here it is, here's the crunch. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Okay, so there it is. There's the crunch to which we're going as we look here in chapter 2. Please notice two things uh, about these two verses. First of all, the dreaded silence. Did you see that? Verse 19, uh, he says, The whole world, every mouth will be silenced, and the whole world held accountable to God. The picture is of a law court. I don't know if you've ever had the dreadful experience of being in a law court. Uh, It is awful. Uh, The whole procedure is terrible. Uh, But then to finish up in court, uh, I hope this has never happened to you, I hope it will never happen to you, but to finish up in court accused of some crime or other and uh, the the case has gone forward and it's perfectly clear both to you, because you know the facts, but also it is now perfectly clear to everybody in the court that you're guilty. And... There's nothing you can say. You've reached the point where there's nothing that you can say. And you don't even have a decent lawyer. There's nothing the lawyer can say. Any lawyers here, by the way? Some? Yes, I thought so. Okay, good. Well, the lawyer has nothing to say as well. There is nothing to say in your defence whatsoever. The picture here is of a law court. But this is not just any old law court. I mean, the ordinary law court is frightening enough. This is God's law. This is God's day of justice. This is the court where you will appear, every single one of you in this room, you, I, all of us will appear on the day of judgment before God and our guilt 
will be manifested. I don't mean G-I-L-T. I mean guilt, shame. You will be declared guilty on that day and your guilt will be such that you'll have nothing to say. You can't defend yourself. You know, God knows, that you are guilty. So please notice, every mouth stopped, no defense left, and the law uh, is speaking against you. Uh, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced, the whole world accountable to God. Every person is under the law. And the law accuses you and slays you because you have failed to keep it. So that's the dreaded silence. But look at the dreaded verdict that follows the dreaded silence. Guilty. And look at verse 20. Therefore no one will be declared righteous, or to use the old word, justified. No one will be declared justified. No one will be declared innocent. No one will be acquitted. No. Can you imagine sitting in court and waiting for the jury to come back and the jury comes back and you're... Can you imagine the, the feeling that you would have as you're waiting for the jury to speak and then they speak and a few minutes later you're led away? Uh, no one will be declared innocent on that day. Uh, there'll be no argument. Uh, it's not as if you'll be able to say, but, but wait a moment, uh, yes, I did do a few bad things, but, but just think of the good things that I did. Uh, I, look, I helped that blind person across the road back in 24th of August, 1999. Yes, I helped the blind person across the road. Please take that into account. No, that argument will not work. Look again. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law, by keeping the law. Instead, the law works against you. By the law, we become conscious of sin. <laughs> I had a bad moment a couple of years ago. I noticed I was driving someone to the airport and I noticed that there was a policeman uh, riding his bike right behind me. That's good, carefully going along. Then I reached a point where the road had changed and I wasn't sure. I thought, I thought we'd gone down that direction and now we we're being asked to go down that direction. I became puzzled and befuddled and immediately went straight through the red light. And the policeman was right. He didn't even have to sort of send his siren going. He just pulled up and booked me. And what could I say to him? Not a thing. <laughs> It was completely obvious I was done for. That's where we are. No one, the, the law was against me. And I was caught. And that's where we are. That's you. That's me. So, two dread moments. Now, what's at work here are what I call two key principles. Two key principles. Go back. Uh, now, that's where we're going to end you know, in a couple of weeks' time. <laughs> what, what excitement. <laughs> you can't wait. Um, okay, we'll go back. How come this could be the case? There are two key principles. Uh, you see, you could argue, couldn't you? Uh, well, 
No, I didn't keep the law. But then, on the other hand, I wasn't given the law. Uh, it's only the Jews who have the law. Aha, God, you didn't give me the law. Therefore, I was ignorant of the law. Therefore, I can squeal in. You know, I'm, I'm, I'll just get in because I didn't have the law. That could be your argument. Well, it won't work. Now, here are the two key principles. In chapter 2, chapter 2, and a uh, passage which presumably did last week, chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, uh, he talk, he's talking there, he's addressing particularly the Jews, but uh, what he says is relevant to us all. And he says, uh, verse 5, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, that is the day of judgment, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they've done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Can't see anyone here in that category. Anyhow, uh, that's good. I can think of Jesus. He was like that. But other than that, I'm not sure. But for those who are self-seeking and to reject the truth, this is me, uh, uh, self-seeking and reject the truth, yes, and follow evil, yes, there will be wrath, oh, and anger. There'll be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. Oh, <laughs> I raised five children. Rather, my wife did, but I raised five children. <laughs> no, we never had to teach them to do the wrong thing. We had to struggle to teach them to do the right thing. We're still doing it. But we never had to struggle to do the wrong thing. Teach them to do the wrong thing. They just did that. As my brother once told me, his daughter, my niece, the first sentence she ever uttered as a two-year-old was a lie. Wasn't that good? She looked at her brother and said, he did it. <laughs> Thank you, Ruth. Yes, it was Ruth, in case you know the, uh, the uh, family. Well, there will be trouble and distress for every human being that's evil. First for the Jew, because they actually were given the law of Moses. Then for the Gentile, the rest of us. But glory and honour and peace for everyone who does good, yes. Uh, I mean, loving God and loving your neighbour, you could say, yes, I love the Lord with God with all my heart, soul and strength. That's the first commandment. You've been doing that recently? Oh, Okay, with glory and honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then the Gentile, then the key principle here, look, verse 11, for God does not show favouritism. You know, there's a, very, uh, uh, there's a verse in Exodus which really, uh, I can remember reading it and then, what? And then reading it again, and is this right? Yeah. And the verse goes like this, it's in Exodus 23, if I remember correctly. It says... Um, Speaking to judges, human judges, it says you must not show partiality to a poor person. Oh, I always thought the Bible was in favour of poor people. Surely it's saying you must favour the poor person. No, the Bible says you must not show partiality to the poor person or the rich person for that matter. It's not the business of the judge to show partiality based on things that are not 
absolutely relevant to the case, the impartial judge will judge the case. Now look, who are we dealing with here? God does not show favoritism. It's wonderful, isn't it? When you think about it, that's terrific. That's what you'd hope, isn't it? Don't you hope to live in a world in which justice is at the very heart? I mean, don't you love justice? Aren't you, aren't you glad? Don't you want to have justice? Uh, don't you want our, our, our nation to be just? Don't you want our rulers to be just? Aren't you glad to hear that there is justice at the heart of the universe? It's good news, it's not bad news. What, what if God were bent and twisted and could be bribed? Would you like that sort of God? Well, it'd be less than you and me. You wouldn't want that sort of God? No. At the heart of the universe, there is justice. Thank God. He shows no partiality. You don't look happy. Not many of you are smiling with happiness about the idea that God is just and the universe is, you know, I've caught a vague smile. <laughs> you know why you're not happy about this, don't you? Same as me. Huh. Strike. I'd like him to show partiality to sinners. No, God shows no partiality. That's a principle of the universe. We have an appointment with judgment. It is eternal. It's referred to here as wrath. God's righteous anger. There is an unrighteous anger, but God's wrath is righteous anger. His wrath, it is eternal. You're such an important being. You're so important that God takes you so seriously that he is prepared to say you must have eternal judgment. That's how important you are. He doesn't say that to elephants. He does to humans. It shows our significance to him. And you know, the awful thing is, you could be quite a nice person and still be judged against. Or you could be a nasty person and still be judged against. Niceness and nastiness doesn't come into it. The question is, have you kept the law of God? Have you kept his law? Are you that person? Now, uh, we've already been told in chapter 1, by the way, that the wrath of God is experienced here in this life. Um, in chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven now against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood in what he has made so that people are without excuse. He's talking here about Gentiles. He's talking about every human being. And he's saying, look, your business as a human being, your chief business is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That is the first business of every human being. And instead, you've suppressed the knowledge of the truth, you've invented idols, 
and you have lived your own way. Look, there's this terrible list, isn't there, of sins at the end of chapter 26. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. He must have known Sydney existed, apparently. That's us he's talking about. Now, he's not talking about the Jews there. He's talking about all people, the Gentiles. Why are we like that? Because we've suppressed the truth, the knowledge of God. There is one God, eternal, all-powerful, all-righteous. He is this God. And it's no good saying, well, I'm quite a nice person. People tell me so. You should have been at my last birthday when they made speeches about me and they told me it was like being at my own funeral and hearing the eulogies. Uh, really, I am quite a nice person. In fact, aren't funerals a bit funny? The sort of people talk. <laughs> I did hear at, at one funeral once, I did hear a voice of criticism in the eulogy and one of the daughters of the deceased stood up and said she wasn't a very good cook. But apart from that, all I had was praise. People pray eulogy to speak well of. Eulogy to speak well of. Is that you? Well, that's what we hope. They're such a nice person. The trouble is that God looks not only on the outward behavior, but he looks on the heart. You see... I can tell you something now about me. Are you ready? Have I ever committed adultery? No. I have been faithful to my wife for 54 years. Have I ever stolen something? No. I've paid my taxes. I pay at the supermarket. I have not stolen anything. Have I ever murdered anyone? No. Have I committed idolatry? Do I have a secret sort of idol at home somewhere or other? Bring it out and pray to it. No. Actually, I'm a churchgoer, frankly. I always go to church. Oh, I'm safe, am I? I'm one of the good guys. I'm here. Yes, that's right. I'm going to be I'm being okay on the day of judgment because I do all the right things. If you say that to yourself about yourself, you're a fool. Have you never committed adultery? The Lord Jesus said, adultery is not outward. It is outward, but it also is a matter of the heart. If you lust in your heart, in your dreams, in your visions, on your screen... If you are lusting, you're committing adultery. You've broken God's law. Theft. Why are you guilty of covetousness? Of longing for that which is not yours? You've committed theft. Of murder. The Lord Jesus said if you're angry... You've murdered the other person. 
Idolatry? Oh, we go to church. I go to church. Yes, but who do you truly worship? Who, let me ask you, who does your heart belong to? If you do not love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind, you have broken the first commandment. So there are two key principles, that God is a God of justice, thank God, and that sin is not merely outward, it's inward as well. Have you loved your neighbour as you love yourself? So that leaves us with one urgent question. Who is better off? The people who have the law, namely the Jewish people who had the Mosaic law, Ten Commandments given to them by uh, through Moses at Mount Sinai. Uh, they, they in Paul's day were somewhat. Some of them, at least, were somewhat proud. They were they were the chosen people of God after all. <laughs> it's good to be the chosen people, isn't it? So they were the chosen people of God, and they had the law. That was a sort of a badge of yes, we 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 are the good guys. We are the chosen ones. But as Paul says, it's not a matter of whether you have the law. The question is, do you keep the law? Look at your own history, Israel. Disaster after disaster after disaster because of sin. Virtually every great hero of the Old Testament, Moses, David, Solomon, Noah, were flawed and shown to be sinful human beings. You may have the law, but do you keep the law? There were others around in Paul's day. In fact, Paul was one of them originally called Pharisees. And they were so concerned that we keep the law that they did everything scrupulously. They were absolutely moralists. They, they walked the narrow road trying to make sure that they kept the law sufficiently. So much so they looked down on other people who didn't keep the law and didn't even try. <coughs> But the thing about moralists is the great thing which they lack is love. So the Pharisee looks down at the tax collector and doesn't see the tax collector with love, but rather disdains the tax collector as someone who doesn't keep the law of God. Well, what about those without the law? Could the Gentiles put up a case here? Look, God, if you're going to judge us, we have to say, you didn't give us the law. So how can you judge us? How can you judge us? You can't blame us. Have a look at the passage we're meant to be looking at. You may be wondering why we haven't looked at the passage yet. Well, I'm just putting it into context. Okay, so verse 12. Verse 12. All who sin, look at this, all who sin apart from the law will also perish. You may not have the law, but you sin nonetheless apart from the law. Uh, and all who sin under the law, the Jews, will be judged by the law. For it's not those who hear the law from Mount Sinai and Moses who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Not those who hear the law, but those who obey the law. But I don't have the law. You never gave me the law, says the Gentile. Oh, yes. Before Moses, before Mount Sinai, the law of God was given. 
people knew what they should do and shouldn't do. When Noah, when the world was destroyed in the great flood, they didn't have the law of Moses, but they were brought under judgment for not worshipping the one true God whom they should have served. Sin was still there. Tower of Babel. You could go on and say, sin was still there before the law was given. All the law did was make the sin clear or clearer to those who it should have been clear to to start with. For they should have known. They suppressed the truth about God. It's no good saying, oh, I didn't have the law. The question is, are you a doer of the law? In fact, the apostle goes on here, interestingly, uh, it's not those who hear the law that are righteous in God's sight, but those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. And then in verse 14, indeed, when the Gentiles, who don't have the law, admittedly, they don't have the law of Moses, yes, mind you, he accuses them earlier on of uh, not loving their parents the way they should. Notice that? They might not have had the law of Moses, but they should have known that they should love their parents. Yes, more of that in just a moment. Indeed, when the Gentiles who do not have the law look, do by nature the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves. Even though they don't have the Moses law, they show, look, that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts, sometimes accusing them and other times even defending them, uh, perhaps with success. You are to do the law, but you cannot say you do not have the law, you do not know the law, for it is written on your heart in any case. You think that's implausible? I want to take you to a special place here in Sydney. It's called your local coffee shop. You've been there? Maybe you don't do coffee, but just assume you do for a minute, okay? Your local coffee shop. And you see two people there, deep in conversation. I wonder what they're talking about. No, I don't. I wonder who they're talking about. Yes? And it's interesting, isn't it? I don't think you've ever been in a conversation like this. I'm sure you haven't. But it is interesting, isn't it, when you get those two people together over a cup of coffee and you start talking about Sheila or whatever it is you're talking about, whoever it is you're talking about, Jim or whatever. <laughs> First of all, you start by saying, oh, have you heard about what's happened to Paul? But then the conversation goes a little further, doesn't it? And you begin to talk about their failings and their weaknesses. Oh, yes. Did you hear what she said to her mother? I can't believe this. Given all her mother has done for her, do you know what she did? Do you hear what he did at work? No wonder he lost his job. And so the conversation goes on, and it's very, very... I'm right, aren't I? 
It's very judgmental. Have you noticed this? Is it just me and my generation? Is it just me? Sir, pastor, tell me. It's all of us. He says it's all of us. He, I pay him for that sort of thing. Okay. <laughs> we are very, maybe not in a coffee shop. It may be somewhere else for you. I don't know. But we are very judgmental. And what standard do we use to judge other people? Why, if they don't tell the truth. Oh, hang on. God's law says to tell the truth, doesn't it? Oh, it seems as though we know people should tell the truth. Or we say, do you know how she treated her mother? Oh, you're supposed to honour your parents. God's law says that. Do you know how mean he is? How he never gives a single cent away to anybody? Oh, God's law says to be generous to others. Can you imagine how... He made his money. Hmm? What he what he went to? He, he imagine how he got around the tax department in order to make his money. Oh, you mean theft is wrong? In other words, even though, and this is true, I think, even though if you're a Gentile, in other words, you haven't heard the Bible and so forth, even though your conscience may not be a hundred percent. You may condemn things that aren't condemned in the Bible and you may think things are good that are condemned in the Bible. On the whole, your conscience is good enough. Conscience is never perfect, by the way. But you're, on the whole, your conscience is good enough to know what God requires. Interesting, isn't it? I think it's right. We just know what is the, which is what he's saying here. He's saying here, they show the requirements of the law, verse 15, are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts, sometimes accusing them, sometimes defending them. Yes, that's possible. This, he says, will take place. That is, judgment will take place on the day God judges people's secrets. You got any secrets? Got any things that you're ashamed of? Got any things in your life where, looking back, you can see you shouldn't have done that? Oh, you mean you're a human being? You're looking at a man like that, I guess you might be like that too. But you don't think they're secret from God, do you? God knows you far better, a million times better than you know yourself. And his memory is not like mine. The day when people's secrets will be judged through Jesus Christ, who is the one appointed to judge the living and the dead, as my gospel declares, the gospel is good news that God's judgment will one day happen. That's good news. We want that. Of course, there's more to it than that. So, ignorance, so-called, is no excuse. Two confronting consequences, as we conclude. First of all, for the sceptic who says, Oh, I didn't know. Well, 
ignorance of the law is no excuse, even in human terms. It's no good me saying to the policeman, was it, oh, I didn't know you were supposed to go through, you weren't supposed to go through a red light, sir. He would just laugh at me and book me anyway. <laughs> By the way, I said to the policeman when he did it, thank you for doing this job, it's a difficult job, and thank you for doing it, and thank you for the way in which you've done it this day. And he was, he, you could see a look of shock appear in his face. <laughs> I don't think anyone has ever thanked him before. You ought to try it, because the police job is a very difficult job to do, actually. So... Try it sometime. Okay. <laughs> Tell the truth. <laughs> Dear idea. But you see, one day every knee will bow before Jesus Christ. Those who worship him now and those who do not worship him now, every knee will bow before him and he will be our judge. And no good saying then, I didn't know. <laughs> no, sorry, I'll tell another story. <laughs> I was once in a car. I was driving with the, uh, the father was in the front and the mother was in the back with two children, two boys, one on each side. And the, there was a two-year-old and a four-year-old. And uh, the two-year-old had been a bit sick. Anyhow, the, the, uh, the mother gave some lollies to the four-year-old but not to the two-year-old because the two-year-old had been sick. And the two-year-old instantly said, now you tell me what you think he instantly said. Thank you. Thank you, two-year-old. Jason, you're perfectly <laughs> correct. May I congratulate you on knowing exactly what he said. That's very good. Don't be hurt, brother. <laughs> Just don't sit in the front row in future. Okay. Yes, Jason has said it. That's not fair. Were you there? No, it wasn't you. That's not fair. Of course that's what he said. A two-year-old knew what was fair and not fair, yes? We, it's just inherent that we know what justice is and we want justice as long as it goes our way. Justice. Well, no good being a sceptic and saying, well, I didn't know. You do know. But then there's a greater there's a greater problem, and it's why I've called here the moralist. Those who say, yes, I'll be okay on the day of judgment, I go to church. Well, or you believe in yourself sufficiently, you pay your spiritual taxes by going to church and maybe reading the Bible, uh, you give money, etc., etc., you do good deeds, you're paying your spiritual taxes, and therefore when the day of judgment comes, you'll get the pat on the head. But the only way you can beat the charge produced by the law is by reducing the law down to your size. Oh, God, you told me not to commit adultery, and I never did. But did you lust? Oh, I didn't know the law meant that. So you bring the law down to fit you. That won't work. That's not how God works. You can only have assurance in the end. The truth about assurance is you can only have assurance if you have a very, very good lawyer on the day. And so, imagine yourself in court. You'll be there. 
Imagine that you have to represent yourself. Never a good idea. Imagine that your argument is going to be, I'm not as bad as other people. I can tell you right now it's not going to work. Not a good argument. Imagine that you know that the judge cannot be fooled and knows everything about you. Imagine, therefore, that the verdict on you is going to be guilty. You want to be justified, but you won't be. You've got no hope. It's not possible. Oh, uh, sorry. Later on in the Epistle to the Romans, there's a really strange contradiction. You see, in Exodus, another verse in Exodus says... God says, I will never acquit the guilty. There we are. Good news. I will never acquit the guilty. I'm a perfect judge. But you'll get to this in due course, I think. You're going past. right? Yes. In Romans chapter 4, there's a phrase that I want you to notice where God says, I acquit the guilty. What? I justify the ungodly. What? Oh, you remember how I said it's wise not to go into court without a very good lawyer? Well, you have a very good lawyer if you go in with Jesus. And between this God saying, I never acquit the guilty, and him saying, I do acquit the guilty, There's a cross. The death of Jesus. And that, dear brothers and sisters, is your only hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a great God. We thank you for your justice. We thank you for your awesome righteousness. We confess before you, as we have done already, that we are sinful people and we have no cause. We have no argument. We have no means of calling out to you from the goodness of our hearts. But we thank you too, Heavenly Father, that we can call out to you through Jesus. And that in him our sins are dealt with. And in him we have the forgiveness that we need. And so we thank you with all our hearts, with tears in our eyes. In the name of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. Amen.